0: So we're in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 tonight. We're in um, 2 Corinthians for the next four weeks after tonight. It's four more weeks. And we are looking at the theme unmasked in this book. Unmasked. And the idea is that people wear masks so that we see something that they want us to see. And we're not seeing their real self. They're putting up some sort of a mask. It's usually better looking than we really are. And they're trying to hide something. And Paul unmasks himself to the Corinthian church. So what we're looking at tonight is the unmasked gospel. Last week, we looked at distress unmasked. And the idea last week is that sometimes we go through events and circumstances happen and we get distressed. We feel pain because someone hurt us. We feel sorrow because something has happened. And we feel sorrowful because things aren't going the way we wanted or planned. And we feel distress. And Paul could have walked around with a mask on his face and said, I'm doing great. Everything's fine. I'm perfect. I've never been better before. But instead, in the first two chapters, we see Paul unmask himself and expose the deep distress that he was struggling with before the Corinthians. And here's why. After Paul had written 1 Corinthians from the city Ephesus, he gets word that opponents, he calls them sarcastically, super apostles. You'll see that in chapter 11. He sarcastically calls these opponents super apostles because they come in as these polished leaders and they boast about how good they are and how weak Paul is. And they end up getting the converts in Corinth that Paul planted that church and saved them. These Super apostles end up getting these converts to follow them and to start dismissing Paul as any authority whatsoever. And so Paul has this problem now where his own church is beginning to walk away from him and follow these super apostles into who knows what. And Paul was fearful for their very own salvation because of this. So Paul um, decides to go hop all over from Ephesus to Corinth, two major port cities. So it took the ship over nonstop sailing and gets to Corinth and he goes up to the church and he is rudely greeted by the church forefronted by the leader of the opposition party an individual and this individual all we know about him is he's a Jew he's got people riled up against Paul he boasts that he has credentials he has letters from people in high places that have commended him as the proper pastor of the Corinthians. Um, and he's accusing Paul of not being, um, friendly enough to the Corinthians and taking money from, for them, from them for support and all these accusations against Paul. And so Paul comes up and he's confronted by this ringleader, and he's rudely rejected by the entire church. Paul doesn't even get a chance to say anything. And this event was so painful to him. that He goes back to Ephesus and he writes a letter. Everything he was not able to say to them face to face, he writes a letter. And apparently it was scathing and it was severe and it was heavy. And it was, it was, Paul was worried about it. He so spilled his guts on this piece of paper. One translation says that he wrote with more tears than ink. That's how much this letter pained him. And he sends it over to the Corinthians um, this letter we do not have today. It's lost to history. Uh, be nice to see what was in it. See Paul in a bad mood would have been very interesting. <laughs> so you can be severe in a good mood too, right? So he is oh, he's so distressed about how they will receive this letter. Uh, he, he can't handle it. He's not at rest. So he is going up to Troas. Um, it's up North from Ephesus and there's a great ministry opportunity. He says, he says that God opened up a great door for me to bring the gospel to these people. And he said, I couldn't even focus on it. I was so distressed for the Corinthians and worse yet. Titus, who delivered the letter for Paul, Titus was to meet Paul in Troas. But winter comes, the last ship comes to port, and Titus isn't on the ship. And Paul is worried now. He's far, he's far into distress, because he doesn't even know how the Corinthians are doing, doesn't know how they received his letter. And worse, Titus hasn't come back, so now he's going over to Philippi, plan B, um, where Titus and him will meet up, and he is worried, worried, worried sick. And there he meets Titus, and Titus says... Paul, you got them. They realize that these false, these super apostles are fakes. They're phonies. And they rededicate you as their pastor. And Paul's ecstatic. So much so, he writes 2 Corinthians from Philippi, just a bit north from Corinth, to uh, the Corinthians. He writes this letter, and he begins by saying in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, or you can read distress. And so Paul immediately goes on to say, I was so distressed for you guys, and I wrote a letter to show it, but now I'm comforted because Titus came back and said that you guys want me as your pastor again. (laughs) So what he does in 2 Corinthians is Paul's going to continue to unmask himself in a series of writings and themes. And he's doing this to let the Corinthians know that he is their genuine pastor. He doesn't want anything fake, anything false up front. He doesn't want to paint himself with a prettier brush than his opponents. And he doesn't attack his, he's not writing to his opponents. He's writing to his congregants. And he's letting them know, I am genuine and I will even show you my warts and my zits and my ugliness, all of it here it is i'm unmasked they are they doing that no they're going around boasting about how much better they are than me and all their credentials and so forth so that's what paul is going to do in this letter um i shared last week that you can think of this as a resume paul is applying to his own church to be their pastor kind of an awkward situation right And so he writes a resume to them. That's what 2 Corinthians is. It's his resume, Paul's resume to his own church saying, can I be your pastor again? So what would that resume look like? You can imagine it one way, but this resume is the complete reverse of the way you would write one. Rather than writing about all of his strengths and qualifications and why Paul is the most deserving pastor they will ever have, he writes about his weaknesses and why he is probably the worst pastor they can have and all the ugliness of Paul. So he unmasks himself in this letter. That's the idea that we too would emulate Paul's unmasking with one another and with the world at large in our relationships. Paul unmasked his distress and because he did, he received comfort. And if we want that comfort and distress, we sometimes have to let people in. Now, tonight, in a very, very, very powerful theological move, Paul is going to show us that we can unmask ourselves before others because we believe in an unmasked gospel. We believe in an unmasked gospel. What is that, you might ask? Well... This is where we now turn to our text. The unmasked gospel is simply this. It is the good news that God has unmasked himself to us in and through his son, Jesus. That's the unmasked gospel. God has unmasked himself to us in and through his son, Jesus. He is, in other words, made himself known more clearly through Jesus than he had been known previously before. So the gospel is really the unveiling. It's the opening up. It's the appearing. It's God showing us who he is. That's what the gospel is. And Paul's going to write to us that this is an unmasked gospel that should create within us an unmasked people. You ready? You ready for this? I don't know if you really are. Okay, let's go. Chapter 3, verse 1. So are we beginning, Paul asks. To commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, his opponents, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So, again, his opponents saying, hey, uh, Jerusalem, they, Peter himself recommended us to you. Um, Paul's like, uh, great that they have these degrees and from whatever college or whatever, that's fantastic and all, but do I really need that for you? Do I really need that? You guys yourselves, he says in verse two, you are our letter of recommendation. Just look at, look at what's happening in the church. There are people being saved and people turning from paganism to Jesus because I came and shared the unmasked gospel and you're saying that somehow I am not doing it right? What is going on? Look around. The proof is in the pudding. It's right there before your eyes. You can see that I am definitely a legitimate pastor to you guys. If we had a chili contest, maybe we should do that at the barbecue. If we had a chili contest, we can put them all out in bowls and have you guys taste them all. And vote for which is the best. And we may be surprised as Chef Oscar's chili got two votes. The canned chili got five votes. This is no knock on Oscar. I'm just, you'll see why I say this. Um, and um, my wife got seven votes, right? And so, like, you go down the line and there's votes on the chili. Now, if we unmasked who made these chilies, we might be surprised. Like, oh, wait a minute. The person who studied food and how to make food only got two votes. And this amateur got seven votes. What is this? And see, that's the idea here. Paul's like saying, hey, the proof is in not in who has letters of recommendation or degrees or schooling and this or that. The proof is in what do you see happening? So you guys don't need to know where I've studied, blah, blah, blah. Who recommends me to know? Just look around at what God is doing through us. And that's his letter of recommendation. It's what is God doing here? That's the proof. Just taste it. Don't look at the degree. Taste it. Um, of course. Okay, let's move on. So verse three. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So God has written these words of commendation for um, Paul in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he makes this contrast there. The tablets of stone. That's, that's referring to the 10 laws, right? The 10 commandments written on the tablets of stone. And so God is no longer uh, working necessarily through these written laws on stone, but he's now moving in the hearts of people through the spirit. And Paul's saying, that's what you see happening in me. God's using his spirit to move people to himself, so then he goes on in verse four and starts talking about the confidence he has that God is the one doing all this. In verse five, he says, we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent. God has made us sufficient. God is the one who's made me qualified as your pastor. I am a loser and I'm asking myself to show you that as you'll see through the rest of the letter. But God has been making me the competent one. It's his work through me to do what? To be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, presumably that being the law of Moses, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, if in the unmasked gospel, the good news is that God has unmasked himself in Jesus, we see Paul saying this, first of all, in what he calls the new covenant. Paul says, I am a minister of the new covenant. This new covenant. What is this new covenant? Well, if you jot it down, it's in Jeremiah 31, 31. Isn't that easy? Jeremiah 31, 31. Let me read it to you and listen to God unmasking himself. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, Jeremiah prophesies. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that covenant they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So you remember that Moses gives them the Ten Commandments. He takes them out of Egypt. God visits them on Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Laws. Before Moses can even come down the mountain and explain them to the people, they're already dancing around a golden calf, an idol, and they've already turned their backs on God. And the stone tablets get broken, and the whole thing has to be redone. Before it can even get off the ground, the old covenant was broken by Israel. They were unfaithful to God. So Jeremiah, and this continued through Israel's history, Jeremiah foresees a day when a new covenant will be made. A new law will be given. And now he describes what that's going to look like. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, not on tablets of stone, but within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer catch this. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. They will all know me. This is an unmasking Jeremiah is seeing in the future that God's going to make a new covenant. And we now know it's in Jesus because Jesus at the communion table, the last supper of the disciples, he took the bread and he took the cup. And what did he call the cup? This is the symbol of the new covenant in my blood. So as the sacrifices of animals ratified the old covenant, Jesus's blood ratifies this new covenant. And it's through this new covenant that God is now making himself known his law, not on stone tablets that we have to go discover, but upon our very own hearts so that God's nature and character is put within us by his spirit. And God is therefore through that known by all. We don't have to teach each other. Uh, to know God, we have this compulsion by the Holy Spirit bringing us into God. God's been unmasked for us. We see him unlike the Israelites were able to see him. And so that's what Paul is saying here as the minister of the new covenant. Notice at the end of verse six, we're back in Second Corinthians 3. The end of verse six is a small little comment. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Well, in Exodus 34, verse 28. When Moses came down the mountain with the stone tablets and the Israelites are dancing around the golden calf and doing their thing. He breaks the tablets, of course, and there is a huge um, massacre. 3,000 Israelites die as a result of that event. 3,000 Israelites die. But then you flash forward to Acts chapter 2. When God's Holy Spirit enters into the church on that day, we celebrate and call Pentecost. At the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 verse 41, it says that 3,000 people were saved on that day. 3,000 people, nice coincidence, isn't it? 3,000 people were given life because the Spirit is greater than the law, which killed 3,000 people. And so, yes, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And Paul says, this spirit who comes into our hearts, writes God's law upon our hearts, he's unmasking God for us. The gospel is God making himself known through Jesus. So that's what Paul tells them is, hey, I have a better covenant than this guy opposing me. (laughs) I've got the right thing going on. Jump ahead to chapter four, verse six. So the new covenant, we see God unmasking Himself in the new covenant. Now in chapter four, verse six, God is unmasking Himself in light. Four verse six, for God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So here, Paul, again, before he was pulling from Jeremiah 31, 31, Paul, again, is pulling from the Old Testament and he's pulling from Genesis one, verse three, where it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then the rest of the creation narrative takes on from there. So Paul's pulling from that verse and saying that. I, you, we, the rest of the world was in many ways like Genesis one, verse two, until God came in and said, let there be light. And now we see God because of Jesus and the gospel has been unmasked for us. Genesis one, verse two. What does that say? That says now the earth was without form and void. It had no shape. It was empty and darkness covered the face of the deep. That was the earth prior to God saying, let there be light. It was formless. It was empty. It was lifeless. It was darkness. It was not a good situation. And this is the way Paul sees the world right now. It is Genesis 1-2, and it is in need of massive repair. It is in need of serious recreation. And he doesn't just mean the trees and the global warming stuff and all that. (laughs) that, I mean, those might be other things, sure. But he's talking about people. You right now, there's huge darkness in your soul. And there is a shapelessness and there's an emptiness and there is a purposelessness and there's a death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says. That that's the wages of sin. It's death. He sees the world as Genesis 1 verse 2. But through Jesus, God speaks the word, right? John says, Jesus is the word. God speaks the word light and there's light and the whole dark situation Genesis 1-2 begins to immediately transform into a creation. And Paul sees that that's what's happening in the unmasked gospel. God is speaking light into our dark situation that we are no longer groping about, but now we see, we get it. We know Jesus, we know God. We see him and we get him and we're moving in a life-giving direction. And you're going to see next week In 5, verse 17, Paul hasn't abandoned this idea of creation. He's going to say that all who are in Christ are a new creation. And so the gospel is being unmasked in and through Jesus. God is being unmasked in and through Jesus, like light entering into darkness. So that's second. Third, we see one more Old Testament reference brought up. And that's in, go back to 3, verse 7. This is the big one. It's why I kind of went out of order. This is the important one. It's Mo's veil. Moses' veil. So, in Exodus 34, verse 29, after 3,000 Israelites had died, we have this account where Moses is talking to the Israelites about what God expects of them. And they're fearful of him because his face is glowing. He had been in the presence of God on the mountain. He comes down. He's absorbed it. (laughs) It's like coming out of him like a glow worm. And they're looking at him and they're awed. And so Moses has to put a veil over his face. That's the way Exodus 29, excuse me, 34 verse 29 and on. um, That's where you find that. Paul's picking up on that story. And now he's going to do some serious teaching upon that section. So chapter 3 verse 7. Now. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? In other words, he's arguing from lesser to greater. If when God gave the law through Moses, that old covenant that broke and failed and people died, if through that covenant there was glory. How much more the covenant that's giving life. Should there be glory, greater glory in this covenant? So he's arguing. Yes, obviously through Jesus. And in this now God unmasking himself through the gospel. Yes. Glory is getting more and more glorious. So that's what he's saying. Verse nine. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, the gospel must far exceed it in glory. Indeed. Indeed. In this case, well, once had glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, you see the sky and it's got the stars and they're shining. But then the sun rises and what happens to the stars? Do they go away? No, they're just invisible because of the far greater glory of the sun. That's what Jesus has done. He's over. Uh, bright end. <laughs> he's over bright and he's overbearing. He's, he's outshone at the old covenant for verse 11. If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, this is where he gets interesting. Verse 12, since we have such a hope that the gospel is more glorious, we are very bold, not like Moses, <laughs> Who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Whoa. Okay, in other words, Moses was putting a veil on his face, according to Paul, because after time went on, the glory was fading and it would, he would go and appear before God. He'd take the veil off and he's face-to-face with God. And he's getting charged up like a glow stick or something. I don't know. And the stars you have as a kid on your ceiling. And um, then he comes out and his face is glowing. And then he has to, unless the people see, he covers it back up so that they don't see that that glory is slowly receding. It's, an, uh, it's not an eternal glory that Moses had. So he covers it up so the people don't see. Verse 14, he's going to now extend this image. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they being Israelites read the old covenant, that's the Old Testament. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So he talks about how Moses had glory, but it would fade. So he'd cover it up. And now, however, um, the Jews are looking at the old law and they don't get it. They don't see God. They don't see God because he's masked in this. There's a veil that's lying over their hearts and they don't see that the glory that Moses was covering behind the veil, that glory is gone. It's faded so bad. It's just, it's not there. And the glory is now in Jesus, but they don't know because there's a veil there. It's masked from them. They don't see it. And Paul's saying, if, if the mask, if the veil was removed from Moses's face, they would see there's nothing there. That's not where God is. He's in Jesus, not Moses. That's the idea. So we see that um, God is becoming unmasked now in new means, the new covenant. There's light now that's shining, and Moses' veil has been removed, for those that can see. And they're seeing that the glory is now moved on to Jesus. And we see now in some that it's all in Jesus. This is where the glory is. If you will with me, look at 3, verse 14 again. Um, Towards the end, it says, Only through Christ is that mask, that veil, taken away. 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded them blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God? Jesus is unmasking God. He's the image of God. And then four six again, you've already read it. God said, let there be light um, shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So in sum... The unmasked gospel is the good news that God has unmasked himself through Jesus. That's the unmasked gospel. And of course, all this implies, as we had been reading, especially through the veil and the mask that Moses had worn, that God was not entirely unmasked in the Old Testament. Before Jesus. Yes, he existed. Israel tried to follow him. (laughs) Um, They believed in him. But his entire plan of salvation, his entire character hadn't been unveiled. People hadn't seen him fully. And there's a saying that you've all heard before, that the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. So in other words, there's so much about God in the Old Testament, but it's not made clear until you turn the page to the new testament and then there's jesus and he's unmasking all these things like why did israel kill this lamb before they were leaving egypt it seemed kind of random and then all of a sudden jesus calls himself the lamb of god and he's dying for people like oh i get it and all these things that the new testament reveals about jesus or about god because of jesus that that's what the New Testament is doing. In other words, the New Testament unmasks the Old Testament. That there is this great, awesome, amazing God that Israel couldn't quite see and had so much trouble following, and the old covenant failed so miserably because God is simply they didn't see him properly. But in Jesus, God has made known to us all of the Godhead. He's exposed himself. He's revealed himself. And we see the full glory. It's no longer masked glory like Moses was wearing a mask. But it's unmasked. And all of the glory of God is shining forth. That's the message he's saying. That we believe in a gospel that is not giving us, well, God is sort of timid here. You know, he, he, God has unveiled himself as much as a human being can see. Hint, that's why he unveiled himself through a human being, Jesus, his son. The method that through this, his son, we could see him. So, if the unmasked gospel is God making himself visible, then those who follow it should be able to make themselves visible, make themselves unmasked we have a God who descended from great heights, took off a very gaudy, glorious mask and showed us the weakness of humanity in Jesus. Jesus died. Do gods die? Jesus was hungry and tired, confused, worried. God unmasks himself. And now Paul is going to ask us, to be able to do the same so an unmasked gospel should create an unmasked people how does the gospel enable us to unmask ourselves how does that work i'll propose three ideas here in the rest of our text the first is that an unmasked gospel makes us bold and unmasked gospel makes us bold. We don't feel like there's some sort of fuzz. Eh, we know there's a God. We think he loves people. It's very clear in Jesus who God is and what he wants in the world. And it gives us boldness. We don't feel like something's being hidden. We're not trying to hide something. God's made himself known, and, and, he's, and we know him. And boldness happens. Look what Paul says in 3 verse 12. Since we have such a hope, that's the unmasked gospel. We are very bold, <laughs> not like Moses. So, so Moses had to hide stuff from the Israelites. And Paul is saying, look, because we have an no unmasked gospel, we don't have to hide things anymore. We can go forth and minister and we can just show who we are because we have a God whose glory far outweighs anything I can invent or create or make myself look like. I can be bold and say, yeah, I'm a pretty bad dude. I'm, I have a lot of weaknesses. I have a lot of struggles. But my God is glorious. The boldness is what Paul says, the unmasked gospel gives us the ability to unmask ourselves in all boldness. Because we don't have to worry about ourselves. It's God who has our back. So in verse 17 as well, you see that in, it says 317. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we don't have to anymore um, sit next to each other and be like, If they knew what was going on right now, they would never talk to me again. Well, actually, some people are kind of mean. So you might have to be like, that. some people, but those that follow the unmasked gospel, you can, you can reveal that stuff. And they're going to be like, more like, no, you have no idea what I went through. (laughs) And then it's going to become this, this gross cesspool of your guys' problems. And it's going to be great and glorious because we're all going to be in the same jacuzzi with the same foam. Foam comes from dirt. You know that, right? That's, yeah. Stay away from the foamy ones. Um, So the spirit gives freedom. He moves in our midst and it's no longer a law condemning, but it's a spirit forgiving. And it gives us freedom to be around in ourselves. And then finally, verse two of chapter four, you see this very interesting section So I'll just start in verse one, but it's chapter two that we're looking at. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Now you can hear who he's talking about, right? His opponents. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, Well, Paul is, he's saying there, we are ministering to you guys. Unlike these people over here, these super apostles that are masked and they're trying to, they're doing all these cute little clever tricks and they're making you believe in whatever. I don't even know what they're doing. We're unmasked. We're not doing underhanded ways. There's no cunning. There's no tampering with God's word. We're an open letter. And I like how one commentator translated this. It says, we refuse to wear masks whoa we refuse to wear masks we keep everything we say and do out in the open there's a nice paraphrase of what he's saying there so yes um having an unmasked gospel a god who's revealed himself in jesus enables us to be bold and to take off our masks second an unmasked gospel makes us jars of clay (laughs) chapter four verse seven but we have this treasure in jars of clay stop um jars of clay we might be thinking of an old band christian band from the 90s and early 2000s um yeah they got their name from a passage like this um the jars of clay is supposed to make you think, if you're used to a clay society of clay pots, of an ugly jar. Basically, it's only clay is the idea. It's a jar that is only clay. Whereas you would take a jar of clay normally and you would adorn it with glaze and um, a coating and paint and all kinds of things that make it look beautiful. And you could hang it up on the shelf and all your friends can admire it and could put beautiful flowers in it or whatever you're going to do with it. Um, but this is just an ugly clay jar. You know what clay looks like? It's ugly. Dry is very plain and dirty looking. That's what he says we are. We have this treasure, the unmasked gospel in jars of clay. Um, In Corinth, they they sold. We don't know for sure if this is what he's thinking about, but he could be thinking about the the jars that they sold in Corinth that were very, 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 very thin, very thin and cheap. um, Because... It would be a nightlight. You put a candle in there of some sort and it would actually be thin enough where light can come through to an extent of the, of the jar. And so these would be very cheap jars, easy to break, things you want to be replaceable and thin enough to show light. Uh, that could be what Paul's referring to. We are jars like those. Now, now why does Paul want to boast <laughs> to the Corinthians about the fact that we are clay, ugly, functional, not pretty jars? Yeah, I know my opponents are the beautiful ones with all the enamel and the paint and they can be sold for high prices. They even have gold gilding. Look at that it glistens a little bit in the right light. But we (laughs) were ugly clay jars. Why? Why does Paul boast about that ugly, weak side? Because finish the verse We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So in other words, when you see something happen that was, wow, Paul's like, well, you know, it wasn't us because we're stupid jar clays, clay jars. You know, it couldn't have possibly been us. We weren't that beautiful to begin with. It must be the treasure within us, the God within us. In other words, so that you guys would know that the message is more important than the messenger, contrary to my super apostles it's all about the messenger using the message to make the messenger look beautiful well polished popular well paid so forth and so he gives you that sense of take the attention off of us we're ugly clay jars he goes on and boasts about what a good job they do everywhere check this out it's a good resume check- verse eight We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So basically we go around and we're hated by everybody and oppressed by everybody. That's the guy we want. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our moral flesh. And that, again, is going back to the jars of clay idea. He's just elaborating on the same concept. We've been going through a lot. And it hasn't been the most beautiful or attractive lifestyle. Hey, come follow us. You're going to do this too. It hasn't been that at all. In fact, it's just he he's he's likened his life to the death of Jesus. It's that bad. So that the resurrection of Jesus can be experienced. So, in other words, we go through the gross stuff. We look bad just like God can look good. That's what he wants them to know. So, an unmasked gospel makes us bold, it makes us clay jars not the beautiful one is it (laughs) and third it makes us mirrors it makes us mirrors look with me at three one back again but again i saved the best one for last three verse 18 this is where he's talking about the glory fading behind moses's mask and it's in jesus those who turn to jesus see ah we see god he's unmasked because of the glory um in 318 this is what he says now And we all with unveiled face, we're not like Moses. We don't have a mask on. We're unmasked, an open face. His is who we are. We all with unmasked face, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, or New King James, beholding as in a, a mirror or as in a glass, right? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Moses' glory was fading. Our glory is, okay, glorious. And it's actually getting brighter as we go on. We're not waning in glory. We're waxing brighter and brighter and more and more praiseworthy. That's the idea, that this glory in Jesus, it's it's getting brighter and brighter, as the Proverbs says in chapter 4. Brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And... So that's what Paul says here. We are beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed in that glory one stage at a time to more and more glory. Wow. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Now, translation difficulties here. ESV, we are being transformed. I'm sorry. uh, With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. New King James mentions something about beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. There is no word mirror in the Greek there. In fact, actually, the whole phrase is one Greek word, so it just kind of comes out in different ways. But the way the ESV footnotes beholding the glory of the Lord is ideal or reflecting the glory of the Lord. That's that's also how it could be translated. So in other words, what you get here is the use of the word mirror can be one of two ways. Okay. The new King James would believe would lead you to believe that it's saying we look into the mirror and see the glory of the Lord. And some commentators have said that that's the Bible. The Bible is the mirror and it's, it's reflecting the glory of the Lord to us. Or the mirror is not something we're looking into to see the glory of God. The mirror is something that we are becoming that we are the mirrors And that the glory of God is being reflected through the mirrors, which to me seems to be the proper context of the word here. So in other words, um, Paul is saying that the unmasked gospel is transforming us to become mirrors who are reflecting the glory of God we're reflecting that that's what the gospel's doing to us because Moses was veiled and there was not much reflection going on but we with open face he says we've removed the mask we are face to face with God and we are now because that's removed there's a reflective aspect to us We're not hiding stuff so God's glory is somehow muffled and stuff we're hiding and we're ashamed of. But we've instead, unlike Moses, we have removed our veil. We've taken our mask off. And now the glory of God is able to shine through and we're mirroring it because we're not hiding. That's that's the idea. And that that glory isn't just a one-time, ooh, he did something good one day. It's, it's growing. It should be growing and getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And there is more and more and more and more reason for us not to keep putting the mask on lest we stifle the glory of God. But, 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 Brandon, you, I gotta keep the mask on because it's ugly. Really, your glory is fading then, huh? Are you are you of Moses? Is that what you're saying? Because if you're of Jesus, it should be getting brighter and brighter. And There's more and more reason to rip off more masks. But, but you don't know it's ugly. It's, it's not, everybody doesn't need that. But remember, you're just a clay jar. It's supposed to be ugly. It's so that people aren't impressed with you. It's so that they're impressed with him. That's the idea. We have become mirrors, reflections of that glory, which Paul was lifting up so much through this text. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed... I definitely did. Um in my several readings, the word glory was sticking out everywhere. It's like glory, glory, glory. Woo! Glorious. Then I went and counted them and I was amazed. I've got all these little underlines just in this little column. Because Paul uses the word glory fifteen times in these two chapters. Fifteen times. Glory is a theme, I think. <laughs> That's a tricky word though. I I think if you're like me. We tread through the Bible like, oh, cool. Yeah, God is glorious. The glory of the Lord shone. And uh, the glory of the Lord in us. We're like, cool. What does that mean? <laughs> um, glory can refer to, we can think of it in two ways. And this is, these both ways are right. It's just, it's different ways looking at glory. First is light. When we hear glory, we think of light. We think of something beautiful and brilliant, right? The glory of the Lord shone around them. And if they were afraid, like, whoa light bright brilliant that's one aspect of glory it's it's beautiful you can see something that's breathtaking maybe you went to the grand canyon you saw some uh, beautiful sunset in hawaii and that's glorious right it's something that's attractive beautiful even up to a bright light the second use of glory would be praise it would be admonition it would be fame and that's what you see in the Psalms all the time. Uh, we, we, we see them saying, give glory to God. So that's there where you're saying, yay, God, you're, you're giving him praise. You're giving him fame. You're making him more well-known. That's the other use of glory. And so whenever you see glory, it's referring to one of those two things, either light or something beautiful and praise. Now, it also, in this context, I would add a third meaning. That glory is what happens when the God of the universe unmasks himself. That's glory. That's beautiful. That's spectacular. That's also praiseworthy. And what God wants to do in us is unmask us so that that glory can shine the beauty of God through weak vessels, the praise of God, because we're weak vessels. So much so that Paul wants us to be, this is what's baffling. It's we, God is glorious. We give him glory, but wait a minute in this passage, it's us who are the glorified ones. And that's a trip again, three verse 18. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are the ones that are getting glory. Verse 17 of chapter four, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. This is a heaviness. This, this glory sits upon us so that it shouldn't be something that's taken lightly that we just kind of skipping through life. It's something that, whoa, this glory is coming to us. We are getting the glory. So what does this mean? This means that, yes, we are becoming more and more beautiful. <laughs> uh, you'll see that in the end. You'll, you'll actually believe it. Um, God is working in us as new creatures, new creations, right? He's, he's, he, takes, he makes beauty out of ashes, the Old Testament says. Um, yes, he's transforming us into something beautiful. Haven't you ever noticed that when you see something beautiful, something glorious, there's something in us that wants to be either a part of it or to consume it? Sometimes we call that lust. You see someone beautiful and you want to consume them. But in a more simple matter, safer manner, do food. You have the hunk of whatever, crumbs of chocolate. And then you've got the beautiful, perfect square edge with white fudge frosting squiggled on, a little strawberry on the side, garnished with a little mint leaf. You know, you know the deal, right? Um, which one do you want to eat? Some of us just don't care about form at all, and we just want to eat both of them. But it's, it's the beauty of presentation that sometimes causes us to stop at... The bakery window. You might be on a no-carb diet, but, oh, man, bakeries, when they're done right, have you seen those? You walk in, and, you, oh, my God, they're so beautiful. We went to this one bakery, we, being Brittany and I, uh, we went to this one bakery in um, Catella, um, on Catella. It's called C- Catella Bakery, I think. I think some people know about it. It's actually pretty famous. And you walk in, and... We we weren't going to buy any, but you walk out spending like 20 bucks because everything was so beautiful, so well presented. You had to have it. And that's that's, that's a God-given desire that we sometimes misuse. But the God-given desire, because it would seem to hint in Scripture that this beauty we desire is because we're meant to be one with it. We're going to be beautiful one day. We're going to be, um, in one extent, sons of God. You know, it says in the Gospels and... There's going to be the beauty of God in us. We'll look at each other and know God kind of a thing. So yes, glory is being given to us, but also the second use of the word glory, worship, praise, admiration. Did you know that the unmasked gospel, one of the most amazing things that the gospel amasses about God is that he is giving us Glory. He is giving us a pat on the back and saying, way to go, son, daughter. I'm proud of you. Keep going. Even when we fall and stumble, it's not, not again. Stay there till you can get up. It's pick us up, brush us off, say, I know you'll get it next time. That's, God is giving us glory. He's giving us the praise. He's giving us a pat on the back. And when we get before him at the end of time, what's he going to say? well done good and faithful servant we are going to receive glory now this is life-changing because all of a sudden i don't have to walk around with a mask on my face thinking i'm a nobody i can walk around with my chest puffed a bit (laughs) my face up because god has pat me on the back god accepts me that is glorious And that's the degree of glory one to another we're moving through. That's the eternal weight of glory that should be heavy upon us. So much so that we feel like we've got our own weight and we can take the mask off. That's the glory that is going to shine through us. Listen, we are bad. We are sinners. We do mess up. The problem is we look at our failure through our eyes. But God is looking at our failure through Jesus's eyes. And he sees, hey, my son, who's unmasked my glory to the world, he is covering you with that. And I see you as well done. Good job. Keep going. Because Jesus is alongside us. And that's why we don't have to live masked and hidden and sheltered in our own little uh, scaredom. We can be free because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is unity. And Paul says, we don't have to be like Moses hiding behind a mask, but we can be bold because we're jars of clay. We know we're clay. We know we're butt dust. We know that we are just going to die grass today, gone tomorrow, that we are that. But because we are that there is a message. There is a God who looks better than the messenger, better than the person that we are mirrors That's the beauty. We are mirrors reflecting, not our beauty. I don't walk before the mirror and say, that's a beautiful mirror. You talk about the frame if you say that, right? But it's not actually the mirror itself. They're all the exact same thing. They're glass. But it's what is projected, what's reflected from the mirror that gives beauty. And that's what we are. And that's why we can unmask ourselves. That's why an unmasked gospel creates an unmasked people. And that's why Paul can show the reverse resume to his own church and trust that they're going to accept him because they're going to see, yeah, wait a minute, who are these hotshot celebrity bozos and these mask wearers? We want the Paul who reflects the glory of God through him because he is just a junky chipped jar pot. So because Jesus can unmask God, He can unmask you. And this may be a hard step for us, but Jesus can do that. He did it for the Father. He could do it for us. Conclusion, you have one of two people to follow. You can follow Moses and keep wearing a mask, or you can follow Jesus and unmasked, let the glory of God be revealed